Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. You may know me from my blog, Unpickled, where I have been writing about life after alcohol for more than six years, since my very first day. Now, you may have noticed an unanticipated gap in our programming this summer. I wasn't planning to take a month off. But uh, sadly, very sadly, my father-in-law passed away. And once again, I found myself needing to just hunker down and look after myself and the people that I love until I could find the energy to turn outwards again. And uh, it's a good reminder that we really can't hold space for others if we haven't looked after ourselves. So we're only halfway through the year, but already 2017 has tested my sobriety in ways that I did not expect. Uh, So far, I've faced a broken leg and the death of two important men in my life, my father and my father-in-law, who were both gone within a few months of one another. And there have also been some wonderful occasions, and wonderful occasions can be a challenger for us non-drinkers. My son's wedding, which was beautiful and fun, uh, I made it through that as the hostess with the mostest, but still didn't drink. And my husband and I went on a two-week trek through Europe, and I was offered wine at nearly every meal and had a surprise bottle of champagne delivered to my room on my birthday and managed to get through all of that unscathed. It wasn't always easy, but I did it. And then just last week came the hardest sober moment I have had in a long time, and I want to share it with you before we get to today's guest. Um, What was hard this last week was difficult because it was unexpected and it hit me on one of my biggest fears. So some of you may remember that one of my dogs was attacked and killed in front of me a few years ago and that was absolutely traumatic for me. We have a pair of schnoodles which are a cute little schnauzer poodle cross. We had a brother and sister, their names are Copper and Scout and Copper was killed while protecting his little sister Scout. So now I'm understandably overprotective of little Scout and last week we were at the beach and she was um, attacked and bit by a big dog and I get it because she's little and cute and she looks like a rabbit or maybe a very tiny lamb and that's confusing for big dogs Um, but you know it was very upsetting for me because I am so careful with her and overprotective and I was right there when it happened and it really shook me up. So Scout is fine. Her wounds are healing but the point and the reason I'm telling you this story is that even with six, six plus years of sobriety under my belt all I wanted to do was go and 
drink. I want it out of that moment. And it's still, you know, the knee jerk reaction is still that one way we know how, which is to numb quickly and with a drink. So um, just, just a reminder that something that takes you by surprise and upsets you can be a bigger threat to your sobriety than the huge things in life like death and marriage and and vacations and travel. So be careful out there. Our recovery is an ongoing and precious thing. And with that said, I want to introduce to you today a guest who is a listener who herself has been helped by the Bubble Hour and who's now paying it forward by being a guest on the show. Uh, With three and a half years of sobriety, Megan is an interior designer, a mom, and a very cute sober girl, and she keeps things interesting by doing stand-up comedy on the side. So who says life after alcohol needs to be boring? Megan, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, it's we've just spoken for a few minutes um, before recording started, and I just said to you, I feel like an hour isn't going to be enough. I feel like you and I could talk for a whole day. Um, we all just have so much in common, don't we? It's true. Yeah. Well, let's start by hearing your story. I know you've put some some thought and preparation into it, and I know you've done a lot of work on understanding your story um, through your recovery process these past few years. So without any further ado, will you kind of walk us through your life uh, um, and your experience with alcohol? I would love to. Let me start by saying I'm so sorry to hear about your dog. That's, That's so traumatic. Traumatizing. Can you believe it? <laughs> Poor Scout. There's nothing worse than our pets. I just, it's just, it hits an emotional chord with all of us, I think. Mm-hmm. So my name is Megan, and I'm a very grateful, sober woman. Um, I've often felt that if scientists were going to set out to create the perfect alcoholic, my life could be used as the template. I was born in the 60s to parents that were together because of their shared love of drinking. The only thing that I know about their relationship was that they liked to party. Uh, Their marriage was the result of a crazy night that ended up with a trip to Vegas to elope. And I never heard that they wanted children or intended to get pregnant with me. I kind of think I just happened. Um, We have to remember this was pre-Roe versus Wade. Uh, On the day I was born, My dad went on a bender that lasted many days, and my mom told me that I looked at her with my big eyes, and it really freaked her out. I kind of get the feeling that they weren't ready for a baby. I think my arrival maybe threw a wrench in their plans. People in recovery always talk about feeling different growing up, but I always felt that I was bad. I wasn't a bad child in terms of I wasn't a naughty child, but I just always felt like I was a bad idea. In my parents' house, I felt like an unwelcome house guest. I couldn't disappear, so I tried to be invisible to minimize the negative impact. I think that this is where my deep desire to belong was born. I've thought a lot about the nature versus nurture question, and I think it's fascinating. I mean, did I become an alcoholic because that was the behavior that was being modeled in the home? Or was I predisposed genetically? When I was four, my parents divorced. I ended up attending different schools for kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and third grade. 
In hindsight, I think my mom was pulling what we call geographic. In the last two places that we moved, we knew no one. It's always saddened me because I was taken away from the city that my dad, grandmother, and cousins lived. By this point in my life, my outside story matched the way I felt inside. I ended up going to a Catholic school in a tight-knit community from the third grade on. And being the new girl with a divorced mom who drank made me unforgivably different. I wasn't angry about the fact that I was excluded, but I think I accepted how my family was just too much to take on. When I did get invited over for play dates and things with the other girls, there were no guarantees that my mom would be there to get me at a reasonable hour. I knew I was different, and I accepted other people's perception of that. Uh, Growing up, my mom would give me wine when she was entertaining. Um, Although I never, I knew I was never going to be out of control like she was, socializing with a glass of wine with the grown-ups was really nice. It made me feel included. I see how much wanting to be a part of something has been a theme my entire life. I'm sure I was depressed as a child, but I never had any help. My first experience with trying to numb and fill the void came as a preteen with food. I would go on major food binges. Even though I said I wouldn't drink like my mom, the first times that I did drink, I went crazy. My dad ended up getting married for a second time, and at the reception, I was given a drink, which I managed to refill again and again. I got completely shit-faced. When I was in eighth grade, I had some friends that got a hold of a few bottles of champagne, and we spent that evening in my mom's basement with the singular goal of getting drunk. We drank until we threw up. And I was excited to do it again. Drinking was a way for me to connect with other people and something that I had been seeking for a long, long time. In high school, I drank exactly the same way, never moderately. I've heard of people that drink in order to function or make their lives better, and I drank to escape. I wanted to go somewhere else, if only in my head. Boys and their attention became very important to me. When a pretty girl doesn't get the love and consideration she needs at home, she always has options. I looked for love in all the wrong places, and I didn't have any confidence whatsoever. I was kind of like a dry sponge seeking water droplets. I got a chance to see the Psychedelic Furs, the band, in Seattle last week, and when they played the song Pretty in Pink, I cried because that's just my story. I found ways to stand out but by being a fun party girl that was pretty, but inside I felt completely worthless. Well, fast forward a few years, and just as my parents had, I married a man that was seeking a party doll for a wife. I was 21 when I met my first and only husband. He was perfect because I could drink a lot with him. He held it better together than I could, so he could take care of me. And best of all, he got me out of my mom's house where I was living. He was the ultimate enabler. I felt like I was home finally. I belonged to someone. Drinking at that point in my life meant good times, and our lives centered around alcohol. I became the ultimate hostess, and we were happy for a while. In 1994, I became a mom for the first time. When I looked into the eyes of my son, 
everything changed for me. My boys are truly the loves of my life. And being a mom gave me the love experience that I had been looking for always. Being part of a family provided the belonging that I had always craved. I never considered quitting drinking because I was a mom, which is strange to me looking back now. I was entirely surrounded by people that drank. Drinking was still considered a fun social thing to do and a great way to unwind at the end of a long day with kids. A typical day for me in my community would end with a bunch of the other wives drinking Chardonnay in someone's kitchen. But the strange thing was it was torture. I mean, here I was getting what I most craved, and at the same time I was feeling really mad because they drank too slowly. If I had the chance to top off my glass when no one was looking, I did. To be honest, I never really fit in with them. I've reflected a lot about this time in my life, and I feel like I could probably fit in with them now. But I was dealing with a lot of shame and depression, and I was starting to isolate a lot. If I was slighted in any way socially, I took on major water. Or if my children were slighted, It made me crazy. I think I responded to these situations by adopting an attitude that I wanted nothing to do with them. I wanted to be a part of them, but I didn't feel like I was a part of them at the same time. During this period, there were many nights that nothing bad happened. Um, Unless I was struggling to try to string some days together, which I did so many times, Uh, My ex-husband and I would open a bottle of wine every night. Once I started, I could not stop until the room started to spin and I would fall into bed. I always drank until I hit the wall. I've never had a stop switch. Mornings were the worst part about my drinking life. Almost every day, I would wake up with what I like to call a grand mall hangover in a cold sweat, pounding heart, and a sense of utter panic because so much was unanswered about the previous night. Where were my clothes? Where was my car? Who had I texted or emailed? Where were my kids? I'd go down to the kitchen with an awful impression and not much detail, trying to gauge by my husband's attitude how bad it had been and what I needed to do in terms of damage control. All too often, my drinking outpaced my parenting responsibilities. My, left, my ex was left to pick up the slack. I would give up drinking every year for Lent because I wanted to show myself that I was able to. I did, however, give myself a couple of mulligans. That's a, a night off because let's be clear, 40 days is just too long. On one of those nights, I went crazy hard with friends and was record-setting drunk. The next morning, my alarm went off at 6 a.m. because it was time to get the kids up for school. I walked across the room into the bathroom and lost consciousness. I fell forward and cut my head open pretty severely. At the hospital, they said that this event had nothing to do with the previous, previous night's drinking. I don't believe that at all. I'm truly amazed that no one ever confronted me with the truth. There's no way that people I came into contact with couldn't tell by my bloodshot eyes and the way I smelled exactly what was happening. I think as a society, we just are in complete denial about how dangerous alcohol can be. 
I recall going to mom's weekend the first year my son was in college, and I got so drunk that I could barely walk. At the end of the evening, I got behind the wheel of my car because driving seemed easier than walking. I started to drive and had no idea how to get back to the place I was staying. I saw a police officer across an intersection a half block away and realized the danger I was facing. I pulled my car over and slept in a parking lot. I'm not sure looking back on my drinking history that I ever enjoyed the feeling of being drunk. I would feel like I was losing control almost immediately. But I drank because I wanted to go away in my head. I was not comfortable in my own skin, and drinking provided an escape and some relief from that. I worked really hard at this point in my life to find the kinds of people that drank as much as I did. I even had the nerve to say that they were everybody, as in everybody drinks a lot. I know now that this was my sick view of the world that I had created. But you know you're in trouble when even the major league partiers start to shun you. This happened to me because I had become a liability. I was isolating more and more at this point. And I'm not sure if it's because they were avoiding me or the other way around. But I was extremely lonely. It's funny because I was married and I just, I still, I was surrounded by people, but I felt so lonely. My son once described a girl as having drank away her sparkle. And I think at this point I had drank away my sparkle. I honestly cannot recall how I made the decision to walk into a meeting on 2-22-14. That's kind of a miracle to me in its own right. I was depressed and on antidepressants that I was washing down with wine. I had never suffered any awful consequences. I always felt like I was kind of junior varsity compared to real alcoholics with their jail time and DUIs. But what I do know is that I was dying inside, and I did know that my problem was alcohol. My life was on a downward path. What I know now is that if when you start drinking, you can't stop, then you're an alcoholic, and you qualify for this club. My last night of drinking was like so many others. I was hosting a pre-dance dinner for one of my boys and decided with complete and total conviction that I was not going to drink. One of the moms asked what I would have, and I said a glass of white wine. It was that easy. I think that my therapist um, suggested I take a look at my drinking, but no one else ever encouraged me to stop. Most of the people I knew drank just like me. My family are all drinkers, and I've always laughed that if they did an intervention, they'd serve wine and cheese at it. I'm sure I must have stunk and that people could see how bad I was. I'm amazed now when I'm around people that are drinking heavily because I can see it from 10 feet away. I think I've heard the term sober curious on your show, and I think that that would definitely describe how I was at that point. Um, I was really watching with a great deal of interest shows like Celebrity Rehab and reading Stephanie Taylor Wilder's blogs and um I think I was just looking for some kind of a crack of hope, and I felt like the women who were doing this thing and living their lives successfully could provide that. But I really do think that it's a miracle that I found my way to this. 
I think what makes my story different than other people's story is that the typical script goes like this. You have an alcoholic, you have an intervention, they go to rehab, and everyone lives happily ever after. For me, in sobriety, I have experienced my darkest days. My bottom definitely happened after I quit drinking. So I quit drinking, and it was about a month away from my last child leaving for college, and I was dreading it. I could not imagine a life that without kids in the house. I couldn't even imagine what that would look like. My spouse and I had never discussed our future as empty nesters. What we had shared for so long was drinking wine together at the end of the day and being co-parents to our two wonderful sons. After I quit drinking, he continued to drink and was not supportive of me. I think my drinking family saw the changes that I was making as an unforgivable act of rebellion. It was like I had joined a cult. I had absolutely no support. My marriage of 24 years ended when I became involved with a man in the program that began pursuing me when I had three weeks of sobriety and my husband found out. My husband wanted to work on our marriage, but the truth was is that it had been over for me for many years. I accept the role that I play in that. I think I was just looking for some kind of a fiery crash to get me out of my situation, but I really wish in hindsight that I had had the courage to end things more honorably. I was looking for anything to take me away from my reality. I had been lonely for so long. After my husband and I broke up, my family completely blackballed me. My kids were horribly upset and angry that the marriage was ending and in such an ugly way. My relationship with my kids has always been my barometer for my life working, and I was losing that. My family was absolutely no help. My marriage had been over for years, and it felt like everyone wanted me to stay in my unhappy reality so that it wouldn't look bad. My ex asked me to move out, so I stayed with a girlfriend for a couple of months. It's funny because before, when I was drinking, my life seemed perfect. I had the perfect marriage, house, kids, and life, but I was dying inside, and I knew it completely. In committing to change, I had to lose everything. I gave up everything, and what I got was a sense of inner peace and joy like never before. I have to say that at that time, Podcasts such as yours were my lifeline. That was the only thing that got me through. I would go to work, I would come home, I would get into bed, and I would listen to podcasts. And that was my only glimmer of hope for my, that was the only thing that provided a glimmer of hope for me. Recently, I've had to face some really hard things. Um, All along, I've had the sense that to drink would be just adding to my list of hardships. I know that it's not a way out of anything, and I'm so grateful that I can show up now in my life and face hardships. When I was at my darkest point, I never considered drinking because at that point I had lost everything, and I only had one positive thing in my life, and that was my sobriety. And so where that could have made me want to go back to drinking, it made me cling to it like a life raft. 
I saw a quote the other day that was, be who you are, not who the world wants you to be. And I feel like that really defines my experience because what I did went against the grain in every way, but it was the right thing for me and I had to do it. For a long time, I was really reluctant to tell my story or, a fa- or talk about the fact that I'm now a sober woman. As I've thought about this, I've realized that it had to do with my not wanting to be conspicuous. I used to have this fear that I would be at a party and someone would offer me a drink. I'd say, no, I don't drink. And everyone would become quiet and stare at me with confused horror. <laughs> but you know what? That never happened. I now have come full circle on this issue, and I feel that I must tell my story because we are only as sick as the secrets we keep. If hearing my story helps someone, it's completely worth it. I also like the fact that while I had no sober role models in my life, my boys will never have to say that. If and when they need help, I will be there for them. I hope to God that they are not alcoholic, but also know that there's a good chance that they are. We really have to give back, and we have to help other people that are suffering. AA in the big book gave me the tools to deal with anything that I might have to face. I've gone from living a life that was all about avoiding things I was afraid of to being afraid of nothing. I had an awful, awful couple of weeks a month ago. I had rear-ended a car, which was my fault. I had been ditched by my boyfriend, and at the end of the week, I had to go to Portland to help my elderly parents move. They're, they have dementia, and spending time with them is difficult to say the least. I started to be conscious of a feeling that I was having that I hadn't had for probably two years. It was like there was a hole in my gut, and all I wanted to do was fill that hole by smoking pot and taking Valium, which really surprised me. I've never taken a Valium in my whole life, but the feeling was really intense. Instead of handling that situation as I would have in the past, I picked up the phone and called some supportive women from the program. Being able to talk about what I was feeling was just as effective as trying to numb those feelings with a substance, perhaps even more so. And today, for the first time in my life, I have a sense of peace like never before. I am completely comfortable in my own skin. I can look in the mirror, and I like what's looking back. In my son's fraternity, they used to joke about people that they called crack sliders, and those were guys who kind of snuck their way into the house. I feel like I crack slid into my new life. I'm so lucky that I found my way here. I feel genuinely sorry for those people that I know that are still suffering. But I'm no longer trying to run the show because I'm familiar with my work and it's not a good idea. I'm happier than I've ever been. Yesterday I laughed so hard two times that I couldn't breathe. And I remember at my darkest point that was my incentive to quit drinking because it dawned on me at one point that I couldn't remember the last time that I had laughed. I used to hate the expression, I got this, because I took it to mean that I've got this handled. I now love the expression because I say it, when I say it, what I mean is I've got this to indicate that I've gotten a life beyond my wildest dreams. It's clicked for me. One of the themes in my life now is showing up in a new way. I once heard a quote 
that the life you are living is perfectly designed to get you the results you are getting. I have learned that when something isn't working, we need to flip it around and approach it from a different direction, whether it's our work, relationships, or anything. I say a prayer every morning and night, expressing gratitude for all my blessings and asking to be shown how I can be most useful. I have been working on a California fourth step, and that has been an amazing tool for me to use to truly dump all of my garbage out into the light of day. And I find that in doing that, it loses its power. It asks a lot of very specific questions about every phase of your life, and you have to write out everything. I have learned that we are, our secrets keep us sick, so I try not to have any. My emphasis now is working on maintaining spiritual sobriety. Drinking was but a symptom of my deeper issues. If I want to stay sober, I have to look at the anger, fear, jealousy, and resentments that were causing me to drink in the first place. I just got done reading Anne Lamont's new book, Hallelujah Anyway, and it's about mercy and forgiveness and letting go. Those are very, very tough topics for me, but so important. I'm truly grateful that I got alcoholism as my cross to bear. I have seen so many examples lately of good things coming out of bad things. I love how people who have been shunned find their way to this place where everyone is happy and they are made to feel welcome. I've gotten a new way of life, and the world feels different to me now. Before, I felt like everything was an uphill struggle, and now things seem to just effortlessly fall into place. I still have stress and struggle in my life, but now I feel like I can handle whatever I need to handle. I used to be unable to ask for help, and that's another big thing, and I've learned to ask for help. So in sobriety, um, many great things have happened for me. I was able to leave a job that I hated and start my own business, pursuing my first love, which is an interior, interior design. I bought a house, and I have been working to fulfill my lifelong dream of being a stand-up comic. I am cultivating friendships that just get better with time. I can look myself in the eyes and not cringe. I feel worthy of respect from myself and others. I hike with a group of sober folks most weekends, go to sober gatherings, and I'm looking forward to a women's sober camping trip in a couple of weeks. In the past, my my friendships were always destined to erode. My sons are back in my life, and I have a healthy relationship with my ex-husband. My life that was formerly guided by fear is now full of hope. I've been doing a lot of self-care in the form of gardening. I've actually been in my garden so much recently that I feel like I should tell my my neighbors that I'm a teacher um, because I'm home a lot. (laughs) Seeing my aging parents go through what they have in recent months has been nothing short of traumatizing. But I'm so grateful that I'm able to show up and be a good daughter. Really good things can happen from awful experiences. I've learned how strong I am and that I can handle anything that comes my way. I am confident in a way that I have never been, which is good when you are 50 and dealing with the reality of dating. I'm afraid of nothing. I kind of lost everything I had when I was newly sober, and I'm better for it. And that's my story. Wow, Megan. Thank you. That was 
not only powerful, but shared so well. <laughs> um, so two pages of questions for you. Are you ready? Go. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> where to start? I'm going to go backwards through my questions. Um, one of the last things I wrote down, just as you were talking about your parents and the fact that they are both dealing with dementia or delirium, um, do you believe that their dementia is alcohol-related? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was Googling late-stage alcoholism recently, and almost to the letter, they have every symptom of that. And that actually helps to keep me sober because I look at them, and that's a really good reminder of where I don't want to go. Yeah. It, that's a huge motivating factor for me as well. Um, I didn't have that experience with my parents. My dad had had some dementia as a result of his Parkinson's. But it, when I first quit, you know, I was I was starting to really make a lot of mistakes, probably because I was exhausted from the drinking balance I was trying to stake in my life, and I was scared that it was early dementia. And um, now, I mean, health and wellness, especially. I I just turned fifty, and especially as we go into these sort of like menopause years where our hormones go through our like second adolescence, being alcohol free uh-huh. has so many health benefits, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have never, I found a picture the other day that was taken when I was 40 and I looked awful. I'm going to keep it um, and keep it somewhere nearby so that I can look at it often. But my eyes were bloodshot. My face was bloated. I, feel so much better physically at 50 as a non-drinker than I did at 40 as a drinker. Yeah, me too. That's a, that is hugely motivating. Um, well, you mentioned a California fourth step. So if we have a lot of listeners that aren't involved in a 12-step program and don't know the different steps. So can you explain what a 12th step is and then how a California 12th step would differ? I've never heard that term before. So when you do your fourth step as part of the 12th, as part of working the 12 steps, it's really just about doing an in-depth inventory of yourself. And I think that we have a tendency to bury some things deep in the attic of our brain because maybe they're just too painful to look at. But I think that those things that we're holding on to are causing us harm. The California fourth step, it goes by some other name, but if you Google California fourth step, it will come up. And it's probably an eight-page list of single-spaced questions that goes through your childhood, adolescence, and adulthood and makes you really look at everything that has made you you. And they tell you to get out a legal pad and a pen and start writing. And there's something really powerful about writing things down that enable you to really get them out. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to all uh, find that, and I'll post a link on our Facebook page for the Bubble Hour um, so that our listeners can take a look at that. And so when you say an inventory, for people who don't know what that really means, that's a, tell us what that encompasses. Well, I think that an inventory is all of the stuff that you're holding on to that is making you miserable and feeling miserable is what causes us to drink. When you do a traditional fourth step in AA, you start out with a list of all of the people that you have resentments toward. And 
those are just such a big toxic part of what makes us sick. So the power is in just getting all of that stuff out and not holding on to it any longer. And so when you do a traditional fourth step, you write out all of your resentments, you write out why you have a resentment, you write out, you know, what happened, what the person has done to you, how that affected your sense of security, and also what role you played in it. And I've done that, and it was an incredibly powerful experience. This other California, the California fourth step just takes it to the next level, and there really can be no stone left unturned after you go through this process and really examine all of the things that you're carrying around. Because I honestly believe that the drinking is just a symptom of deeper issues. And so once you get those, once you get the drinking thing under control, then you've got to go a step deeper and start dealing with those other issues that are really at the root of the problem. I love how you explained that. And I'm not in a 12-step program. I sort of did more like a patchwork of different programs to support my recovery. But I did hear about fourth step. I mean, I looked at the 12 steps and examined like, oh, okay, well, why do they do that? Why does that help? What's the purpose of that? And I really thought that my understanding of fourth step and because my understanding of AA came from my name is Earl. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I thought it was like a list that you put in your pocket and carried around of all the people who you had to go and apologize to sort of thing. And that, that's sort of part of it, but it's not all of it. Anyway, doing that process really was enlightening for me. So even, you know, listeners, if you're not in a 12-step program, um, it, uh, look at those steps and consider doing that fourth step for your own information. It really is an eye-opener as to what some of the truths that you accept, some of the things that we accept as being true, um, irritate us and that deserve a second examination. So just for example, one of the things that you talked about early on, Megan, was that you were sort of an unwelcome person in your parents' home or that you were a bad idea. And so that's something that you could sort of just varnish your whole life with as being a truth that you never really question because you don't really know you think it. But when you do something like a fourth step, those ideas start to come to light and you get to ask yourself, is that really true? You know, in my case, it was like, does having a messy house really make you a terrible person? (laughs) Where did I learn Mm -hmm. that? Oh, I learned that from listening to the women talk when I was a kid to my grandmas and my aunties and who they criticized maybe or what they criticized. And I put so much pressure on myself to look perfect and be perfect and have a perfect house and somehow thought that my worth and even my safety was wrapped up in that. So um, all of the, it's like a fourth step helps you unpick the hairball, right? It helps you like pull it all apart and find things that you didn't know were hurting you that you could challenge exactly. whether or not they're even exactly. true. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not, so, I'm not pushing AA or any program on anyone. I think that any way that anyone can find their way to some peace, through sobriety, if it works, whatever works for people is exactly what they should be doing. But I think across the board, there are typically underlying feelings that are prompting us 
to want to drink and to numb. And so I think it's important for anybody doing any kind of a program to look at what the underlying causes are. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes as a surprise to a lot of people that that's what AA is all about. Like, as you mentioned, some people think like, oh, you've joined a cult or you've, you know, you you hate us all now because you're part of this other society sort of thing. But it, it really is a set of guideposts that help you go inward and unearth why you're drinking. And I want to ask you, what you would say is I, I get lots of messages from people that are drawn to my blog and this um, this podcast because they really want to try to get sober without AA. And and that's okay. I think it, that comes from the idea that like AA is like the last door. Like you're really bad if you have to go to AA. And I try to dispel uh-huh. that myth. It's a tool. It's a great tool. And it works for a lot of people. And the, one of the great things that it does is it gives you an instant community. And if you're going to try to recover, if you're going to embrace this lifestyle, you are going to need support. And a lot of people don't have it at home. And, I mean, if you're drinking secretly, then how the heck do people know you even need support? But if you walk into a meeting, it's there and it's instant and there's a framework that you can plug into. And so I just want to know, like, as someone who has gone to meetings, and um, some people think that the fact that AA is anonymous or, you know, there's a tradition of anonymity and of sort of not talking about what you hear there, but that doesn't mean you can't talk about it at all. It means you don't talk about who else is there and what their stories are. So I wonder if you could just maybe share a little bit, like what do you say to someone who is scared to go to a meeting? How would you encourage them to check it out and try it? So that's a great question, and you've hit on a lot of really good points. Um, I think that it's human nature for us to want to draw a line in the sand, and they are different, you know. And so there's 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 a stigma about being a real alcoholic that has to go to AA. I know that that kept me from seeking sobriety for many, many years because I would draw a line in the sand and I would say, well, I've never been to jail. I don't have a DUI. My children haven't been taken away from me. I must not be like them. And I think that that's just a device that we use as human beings to make ourselves feel safe. It's an us versus them thing. Um, I have heard people say that, and, and just to complete that last thought, what I've learned is that if when you start drinking, you can't stop, you're one of us. It doesn't matter if it's 10 drinks one time or two drinks. It, it's, it really has nothing to do with the pacing or even the outcome. If physically you can't stop when you start, you're probably an alcoholic. Um, I think that the cult thing is fascinating, and um, this might sound cheeky, but I feel like if AA is in a cult, then maybe everyone should be in a cult because what AA is about is cleaning up your side of the street, practic- practicing rigorous honesty. Um, it's just all about, you know, making amends to people that you owe an apology to, being truthful in your life. There isn't any weird bloodletting or anything that goes on. There's no animal sacrifice or anything like that. And I just, and it, it may not be for everyone, but I feel bad for someone that has that stigma in their mind that's keeping them from going into the room. Because what mm-hmm. I have found is that you take people for whom a lot of doors have been closed. They're not welcome in a lot of places anymore. 
and they can go to AA, and the lights are on, and they are welcomed, and people are laughing there and happy. And I just felt that it was just such a great, hopeful example of what sobriety can look like. And in AA, we get to hear other people's stories and see other people who want what we have and then start to live our lives the way that they've been living their lives. I, I think, honestly, if there's, if there's a legitimate um, gripe about it, it's the God thing. I think that that within the cult description is probably what holds a lot of people back and keeps them from, from wanting to be part of AA. And there are a number of people that I know in the program that do not believe in God and that are not, you know, that are agnostic, and they're completely welcome in AA. Mm-hmm. Do you now you're in Seattle. Are there a lot of recovery options there? Like did you have to try a few different meetings before you found one that's a good fit? Well, it's funny that you say that. When I first went to a meeting, I lived in this very affluent community and I had so much shame about being an alcoholic because I did know I was an alcoholic. No one had officially diagnosed me, but I knew inside that I was. So I felt like the setting needed to match my crime. And so I went to this place called the Fremont Fellowship, which is where it's it's out on a street that's called Aurora. And, I mean, people get stabbed there. It's, it's, it's a really down and dirty setting in which to uh, pursue sobriety. But I just felt like I needed to do this in a clandestine way and show myself what it was about. I often laugh, though, because Fremont Fellowship is considered pretty hardcore, and I like to tell people that I got kicked out of it. But a really sweet elderly lady came up to me right when I got there and said, you know, honey, I think you might be more comfortable at St. Paul's, and sent me to uh, St. Paul's Church, which is over in Ballard in Seattle. And uh, that meeting, Living in Sobriety, happens every day at 4, and that's where I really got sober. Yeah, I think that's something that um, most people don't really think about. Like when you have a stigma in your mind of who goes to recovery meetings, regardless of the program, you sort of imagine that it's all these like sad, broken people dressed in gray, hunched in their chairs, (laughs) telling war stories kind of. And that's not the truth at all. I mean, there's people from all walks of life, all different demographics, all races, all types of personalities it's just a cross-section of humanity and so every room is going to be different every neighborhood is going to be different and um, uh, you know they they sort of use the same framework but it makes sense doesn't it that someone might need to if if you go and you're like oh that's not for me Um, the people were way too snobby Uh, well then try a different one and go to different different places until you find one that's a fit and the fact is even if you are sitting next to someone who's maybe down and out, after talking for a little bit, you start to realize that, you know, they're still pretty darn interesting. Um, and I'm just amazed. I was just at a, a recovery conference in New York this spring, the She Recovers Conference. And, I mean, there's just so many just, uh, just everyday people, just everyday people um, that that just – have that in common, you know, and it really, it really it's breaks so up. true. Uh, no, I want to talk about laugh. you'd, you'd have to be at like the Department of Motor Vehicles or doing jury duty to have this kind of a collection of people 
in one room <laughs> otherwise. But I will say I have heard more laughing in meetings than I ever heard at a bar. And it's, yeah. it's interesting. And it, it shows you sometimes you're sitting next to someone who's a doctor but who's lost everything because of their drinking. So it really shows you how high and how low we can go because of this disease. And don't you love that, you know, that the laughter in those conversations is that true belly laugh and that true release kind of laughing. And it's not that drunk cackle, like it doesn't have that edge to it. It's just so much more joyful and pure. No, it's real laughter. And it comes from relating. And oftentimes what people are sharing is just a horrifying story, but we can all relate to it and we can all laugh about it now. Um, it's very powerful. Um, let's shift gears and talk a little bit um, about your bottom that came after sobriety. And I want to thank you, first of all, for your honesty and your candor in discussing that. Um, talking about infidelity is something that is really hard for people to do because it's not just their story. When we're talking about our sobriety, it's just our story usually. But for someone who has been affected by infidelity on any level, there, there's, you know, at least one, if not two or three other people involved in terms of, you know, spouse, kids, the other person, their family. And, um, and it makes it really hard to talk about. However, I have learned um, in the course of all the people that I've communicated with that it is a very common thread that people either deal with it before they got sober and it can be some people act out um, the codependence piece that you talk about wanting to be liked wanting to fit in that really sets up a lot of women in particular but men as well for being vulnerable to attention from the opposite sex and taking them to places they don't want to be in order to get their drug of choice which can be approval and attention and love um, for some people, the infidelity happens because they're drunk and they don't remember. For some, they've been cheated on and they drink to numb the pain. And here you are talking about another form of it, which is that it came in sobriety. But, you know, the vulnerability, that very precious vulnerable time um, that cracking open of new sobriety left you vulnerable um, to that part of your needs and your, and your life. And as you say, you were in a marriage that was unhappy. Um, and that's something that we don't consider is that that can be a time where we really need to guard ourselves and guard our hearts and, um, and, and watch for that. So I just want to open that discussion a little bit with you. And thank you for talking about it. And I wonder what you've learned about yourself since then, looking back on it. Do you think you were sort of playing whack-a-mole and sort of transferring um, the pleasure-reward circuitry of alcohol to male attention? Or what, what was going on there, do you think? I think that there's probably some truth to the whack-a-mole. I really feel, though, that I was just lost. I mean, I had had this framework of married mom, life with kids for 24 years, and I had been unhappy in my marriage for 10 years. 
I was extremely lonely. I just always laugh about how ironic it is to be extremely lonely and married, but I was. And I made the decision kind of a completely against the tides to address my drinking and become sober. And I didn't have support. And my ex-husband is a wonderful man. Please don't misunderstand that. Um, I just think maybe he didn't know what to do with me once I quit drinking. I don't think anyone knew what to do with me when I quit drinking. It's It really was a major act of rebellion and going against the tides, to be sure. Um, you know, becoming involved with another man is an awful thing, and I really wish that I had had the courage to just end my relationship and and move away from it. That would have been so much better for everyone. But I had been with my ex-husband for more than half of my life, and I had so much fear about I just I really lacked courage and that's been the experience for me through these last three and a half years is that there are so many things that I think we think we cannot live without like for me my children's love would have been one of those things and there was a time that I really questioned whether or not I would be able to continue to enjoy that and losing things and surviving that experience makes us so much stronger um, I, I notice a pattern with myself, and I will put myself last for a long time, and then one day I'll just kind of snap, and it's just mm-hmm. an overcorrection of something that I've let go too long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you repair the relationship with your sons? How did that unfold? Well, it was really hard because my family um, was extremely angry with me, and I very much feel that they were lobbying to my kids to turn them against me. So I really had an uphill battle. Luckily, I have an amazing relationship with my boys, and um, and always have. We have always been extremely, extremely close, and so... I've just given it time, and I I knew that I was extremely important to them, and they were extremely important to me, and um, slowly but surely, we've just found our way back to each other. Last week, I had both boys at my house, and it just fills my heart with joy to to have them near me. Um, That is so true. I mean, our family is... I don't know. My my world feels good when my family is around me, and um, that's not everyone gets to have that. So um, I'm happy for you that 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 came back around. I want to just pass on to the listeners. Um, if this discussion about affairs and infidelity struck a chord with you, there's a, a great um, website uh, that's put out by Dr. Haltzman. H A L T Z M A N. Uh, he talks about um, affairs, but he also does sort of specific work on people with addiction and affairs. He calls it flame addiction, and what he's really talking about is is that um, when an addict gets involved in an affair, they can respond um, in the same way that they do to their addiction, which makes it m- uh, escalate and take over their life in a much different way than it does for other people. So. 
Uh, look up Dr. Scott Holtzman if you want more information on that. Um, in our final minutes, I have a few more questions for you. Um, you said that you drank to go away. You drank when you wanted to escape a moment. How do you do that now? Wow, that's a good question. Um, well, you know what? I don't want to go away any longer. I really, <laughs> there's nothing that I'm trying to run away from. And so I don't feel the need to do that. I mean, I, I love listening to music. I love gardening. I love hiking. And those all kind of embellish my experience, but I don't feel like I need to step away from the experience that I'm having. I'm perfectly happy and fine in the it being in the present moment. And that's recovery, right? I mean, it's building a life that we don't need to escape from anymore, which is rooted in honesty um, that we learn to say, I don't like this or this isn't right for me. And the end result uh -huh. is, oh, hey, I don't need to check out constantly. Um, <clears throat> you also said that you were amazed that no one ever confronted you. Was there, when you were drinking, was there a part of you that kind of wished someone would? Oh, absolutely. But then in looking back, I had worked really hard to engineer a life that was entirely surrounded by other people that drank just like I did. So I didn't have anyone that would have been a sober example to me. And if anything, I think that my family, I don't think that people wanted me to stop drinking, which is strange mm -hmm. to say, but I do think that that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that and that's why I'm so stuck. grateful now that, that my, my boys have that my son and his fraternity brothers were over the other day and had brunch and, they asked me about it, and I love being able to just honestly tell them that I have never regretted quitting drinking. I am yeah. happier now than I've ever been, and maybe that will provide a little beacon of hope to one of them, and maybe they'll come to me someday when they're needing to talk to someone about their own drinking, and I love that. Yeah. I think parenting is all about setting what normal is. You know, our kid, like like uh -huh. we talked about earlier, that veneer of truth and we're not going to get it perfect for our kids, but it's really nice to be mindful of that. The, the things that we do every day and that we talk about openly, that creates their normal. So for your kids, they grow up in a world where it's normal to, you know, be open about your flaws and your, your mistakes and to face them and deal with them and try to change. That's normal. And <clears throat> what an advantage for them to grow up in such a world. Um, and it's just another example, yeah, showing up in a new way. I think that's really important yeah. when things aren't working to try to show up in a new way. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I, I love that idea. Um, my last question for you, and it's not a small question. I hope it gets you to talk for a few minutes about it because it's so interesting. Stand-up comedy, Megan, where, where did that come from? What is that like, and how does it bring balance into your life? Well, um, let's see. I have been a funny person all of my life. <laughs> it's interesting, though, recently, I mean, in, the just, in this subject, um, I've been doing a lot of work around my childhood. And what I've actually learned about my humor was that I developed that as a tool to get my mother's attention. My mother would delight in my being funny and I would <laughs> make her happy and that's why I did it. 
So I really, for a while, was feeling like I don't know if I want to be funny. It really kind of made me upset about the history of my humor. But uh, actually, I'm working on a set, and I'm going to talk about that very thing and say, you know, they, they say you can get a woman to do anything you want if you can make her laugh, and I needed a ride to school, so... <laughs> <laughs> had to get my mom's attention. So I've always been a funny person. I think also in really looking at it uh, critically, though, I mean, it's kind of a defense mechanism. If you're quick and you're funny, you can put people off, and sometimes you can use that to station to where you want them to go. Um, But anyhow, once I was sober and had a clear head, I was able to, I now see this as a gift, and and it refers to what I talked about earlier, that quite often really good things come out of bad things, and this is a perfect illustration of that point. So I have done two workshops where you go and work with other comedians, and work on material, and then you do stand-up comedy at the end of that. And then that group has continued to meet. We actually just met last night, and we collaborate and essentially make each other accountable to get up on stage and do shows. Um, I absolutely love it. It's so much fun. And even though my humor has kind of dark roots to it, I think that laughter is so important for all of us psychologically and I think that that's a gift that I have and I love being able to make people laugh so I'm going to be I've committed to doing two more shows in the next couple of weeks and I'm currently working on material for that and I think that my very transparent open nature uh, translates well to comedy because I I'll say just about anything you sound so happy is that, I'm is that very the effect happy. of society? Yeah. Yeah. Life, my, my, it's, it's, it's an exciting life, isn't it, when you're free to do anything? It is. My dad the other day said, when did you start whistling? And I said, when I became happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a wonderful discussion. I wonder if you just have any closing thoughts for our listeners, any words of encouragement or um, final thoughts. Well, I would just like to express gratitude. I cannot stress enough how important women like yourself and hearing your stories and just hearing your voice got me through times that I really was at rock bottom and didn't have much hope in my life. And so I just really want to say thank you for the work that you're doing and the opportunity to participate. Oh, that is my honor. It is my joy. I am so happy to be here and so grateful to be part of your story and to get to talk to you because I had no idea. I, I don't get to know who's listening. It's all a big mystery to me. The only way I know is when someone writes to me and, and then we get to talk like this. So I love how it's the circle of recovery just rolls along and I'm happy to be part of it. And I'm happy you're here too. It must be interesting to have so many strangers know you intimately. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, kind of a it one-way is. glass. Yeah, when I get to meet people, and then they tend to remember things about me that I don't remember even having said, and mm-hmm. um, and that is that keeps me honest. I'll tell you that much. There's I I I am 
to try to be just as honest as I can be because um, because I know you know people are listening and take it to heart and and the offhanded comments that we can make um, can be exactly what that person needed to hear that day and so it stays uh-huh. with them and um, and I I feel like that is a privilege and I treat it with so much respect and um, I love being part of this I feel like the the universe is is governing the bubble hour like you know it's I have no ego about it because it's not my doing all the magic that happens when we hit publish and it goes on air and then it, people listen and engage and you know that's that's not me and that's not that's just some kind of universal magic that connects us all and I just love touching it and yeah I'm I love talking to you so well, it's kind of you, and I hope that you keep up this great work because it is really powerful, and you are helping so many people. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll keep doing it as long as uh, as it's serving a purpose, and at some point people will get their information in some different way, and it'll run its course, but I love doing it, and I'm I'm really grateful for everyone that's involved on however, however they're connected to the Bubble Hour listening participating, writing, engaging, um, supporting one another, referring it to other people, all of that. It's, it's all, it's a group effort. And uh, if it weren't for all of that, it would just be me talking to myself at my computer, which I also do. And nothing, <laughs> nothing as good comes of that. So, so Megan, I, I thank you so much. And um, I guess I'll just close out the show and, you know, maybe we'll have you come back again um, down the road and, share with us again or join a panel or something and, and we'll hear from you again. I'd, I'd love to hear more of your story. I would love that. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much listeners. Thanks to you. Um, we've been talking with Megan, the sober stand-up comic from Seattle, who is also an interior designer and a mom to teenagers. And uh, I'm Jean. Uh, I am host of the Bubble Hour, and I write the blog Unpickled. You'll find it at unpickledblog.com. And um, you can find all of our 200-plus episodes of the Bubble Hour at blogtalkradio.com slash Bubble Hour. So that's it for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind Oh, you think you're strong you keep it
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.